Good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We are a weekday Bible answer program. We're streaming live from Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. I'm in studio here with Pastor Peter Martin. How are you, brother? Doing good, man. Good, good. Uh, we're excited to be here, and uh, like I said, we stream this every weekday, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and uh, we uh, really encourage people to engage with us online. We stream to multiple platforms at once, so if you have a question about the Bible, about the Christian faith, about world religions, about philosophy as it pertains to the life of the soul, uh, spirituality, and so on. We cover a whole range of topics over the last uh, over 20 years now that we've been doing this program. <clears throat> so we would encourage you to join us. You can do so uh, multiple ways. You can join us on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash at Tucson. And of course, to ask a question, just go to the comment section during the live stream and just type out your question and we'll try to get to it during the program. We also live stream to YouTube. And if you don't mind, as you watch on these social media platforms, to subscribe and hit that notification bell. We live stream all of our services, special events, and, and of course this program all throughout the week. So if you do subscribe, you'll be able to tune in on other events that we have going on. So if you are just looking for uh, a church community to be involved in online, maybe you're on the other side of the planet and you're just looking for a new group to kind of chill out with and go through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, then feel free to join us. Our YouTube handle is at A Reason for Hope 546. And uh, we are going to start posting our program here on A Reason for Hope on Rumble. We're not live streaming there yet, but if you do go to Rumble, make sure you follow. We're going to try to grow our Rumble audience and uh, start to expand to other platforms. Finally, if you want to watch the program and ask questions but don't want to be on a social media platform, go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click that Watch Live tab. Not only can you watch all of our services, including this program, you can chat, make prayer requests, ask questions, all right on your web browser without having to log in or have a social media account. By the way, we have an app that you can watch our services. It's got a nifty little Bible where you can take notes, um, join prayer groups, chat groups, keep up with events going on here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can download this app at the Apple or Google Play Store. We also live stream our services in this program to all Amazon Fire Products and Roku. So if you wanna add our channel, you can do so there. Really encourage you to do that. We have uh, some interesting things to, I guess, recover from <laughs> last week when we were talking about how are you phrasing this journey through thinkers <laughs> who have influenced modern, not, not all of Western society, but modern Western society. Yeah. Yeah, so this is just a study through, I guess you call it the descent of Western civilization, <clears throat> the gotcha. movement from a Western society that was built upon Judeo-Christian values to a society that's become secularistic and humanistic. Um, so, yeah, that's gotcha. essentially what we're going over. <clears throat> well, we had a, a little dialogue last Monday that we're going to pick up from there, and then we'll get to your questions. We have a question we didn't get to on Friday, so we'll we'll get to that question today. Uh, one, one last thing, for those of you who like to ask questions, but you don't want to have your name posted on a social media platform, and maybe you want to do it a little bit more discreetly, 
Uh, you can do that by just going to uh, send your email, whatever email program you want to use, and our email address for questions that you can email to us is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Just wanted to throw that out there. Before we take your questions for today, uh, Peter, would you do us a favor and uh, pray for our time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Father, we love you so much, and we're grateful for all the amazing work that you've done in our lives, that you've called us to yourself, that you've forgiven us through your Son, uh, Lord, that you are sovereign over the earth, and that you are exercising your will, uh, not only in our personal lives, but in uh, the world as a whole. Uh, I pray that that would give us peace and strength and encouragement throughout our day. I pray right now we'd be able to focus in on your word and truth, that it would provide for us clarity as well as uh, encouragement in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, allow me and Adrian to speak in a way that honors and glorifies you, and in your name, amen. 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 Thank you. So last week we were talking about the Renaissance and some of the influential <coughs> thinkers, and I had kind of tossed out the question of, I always thought that the quote-unquote Renaissance, and I'm mm. sure there's multiple ways on you how people define what that era is, who, mm. who were the minds and the thinkers who influenced or I should say spearheaded the the era yeah <laughs> uh, but I I've always thought it was a very secular it sort of was a step towards removing the medieval Christianity right that was so um, overtaken the entire Western world yeah and that's what you're gonna learn in school and up until last year that's what I believed about it as well so <laughs> as we've been going through the series someone might be asking like well if we're talking about the descent of the West away from Judeo-Christian values why are you starting so late right because the earliest thinker that I've quoted is a guy named uh, not Nietzsche sorry but uh, Rousseau Jean-Jacques Rousseau and he was in the 1700s and most people are taught in school that secular humanism evolved and developed in the Renaissance period and the Renaissance period started in the 1300s so the obvious question that someone could ask me is why aren't you starting in the 1300s why aren't you quoting a lot of the philosophers and thinkers coming out of that age. Now, don't get me wrong, there were secularist thinkers in the Renaissance period, but the Renaissance period itself was created by Judeo-Christian values. And I'm going to argue that point in a second here. So it is very important to see that the West, Western civilization, actually reached its peak of Christianity, if you want to put it that way, in the time between the 1000s to the 1500s. That is like the absolute peak of Christianity in the West, and then it slowly declined after that. So in other words, the Renaissance period was Christianity finally living up to the values that were established throughout Scripture, pulling away from the Greco-Roman worldview that prevented them from doing so, and I'll explain that in a second. And it wasn't until at the peak or the top of the Renaissance period that all the institutions, the scientific revolution as well as the artistic revolution, were hollowed out from the inside and taken over by secular humanists. And that's what we're seeing in guys like Rousseau and the Romantics. But they didn't build these edifices, right? So guys like Percy B. Shelley and William Wordsworth and the guys that were going over last week, the Romantic poets, they did not create the amazing artistic innovations of their day. They simply were acting in a poetic structure that pre-existed them and pulling it away from Christian worldview into kind of like a neo-paganism, back into a worship of the earth and a worship of the self, which is really fascinating. And even guys like Rousseau and Nietzsche, the scientific revolution also came out of the Renaissance 
and it was taken over by secular humanists. It was vacated by the church, and I'll talk more about why that happened, but it was vacated by the church, taken over by humanists, but it wasn't started by them. The hmm. church is actually the ones who started the Renaissance period. So why is it that most people are taught that the Renaissance was a secular humanistic movement? Well, it's basically exactly what's happening today. It's good branding. Even the, the phrase Renaissance, what does it mean? Well, it's a word that means rebirth. The rebirth of what? So this phraseology actually comes from the Protestant Reformation, and the Protestant Reformation actually is after the Renaissance. It's actually smack dab in the middle of the Renaissance, and uh, you know the Renaissance had already been going for about a century or so when the Protestant Reformation took over. But the Reformation started utilizing phraseology of rebirth, as well as calling the previous era the Middle Ages or medieval times. Mm -hmm. Well, what were they referencing? The Reformation was saying there was Christianity as it existed in the early centuries AD. That was the actual heritage of the apostles, and then that was corrupted by the Catholic Church, and different types of dogmas were brought into the Church and moved us away from God. And we're here, this is what Martin Luther and John Calvin and guys like that believed, we're here to reestablish true Christianity, the Christianity that gets back to the apostles in mm. Christ. So they started calling that middle period, the period in the late first millennia and the early parts of the first millennia, the medieval times or the middle ages, and we're reforming, we're rebirthing the original intensive Christianity. Mm. Well, once again, Europe at this point is heavily Christian, and the atheists kind of liked that branding, right? So as France particularly, and that's why we use the word Renaissance, that's a French word, which right off the bat should throw up some red flags, because why are we using a French word to describe something that took place in Italy, right? The Renaissance <laughs> started in Italy. Why are we using a French word? Because the French were becoming more and more humanistic at this point, and they started branding the Renaissance after what they were thinking it was, but it wasn't what they were claiming it was. It was just their branding effort, and it was very successful. So what were they talking about? The reformers were talking about early Christianity. What were the French talking about when they were talking about rebirth? They were talking about the Greco-Roman era. So we saw this last week in Percy B. Shelley, when he was declaiming the history of the church, the history of Christianity, he doesn't say, well, the church is to blame and they're terrible. He says, it's not what the church instituted that was problematic. It was what the church lost. And what did he believe the church lost? The Greco-Roman influence on the world. Mm -hmm. And he thought that by recapturing it, bringing it to birth again, we would be thrust forward into a better mm -hmm. and brighter future. Without... Christianity, without though. Christianity. So in other words, when they were saying Middle Ages or medieval times, so even when you use that phraseology, the Dark Ages, the Medieval Ages, you're using the phrases of this propagandistic effort by the secular humanists to actually take ownership of something that they never started, right? They didn't start the Renaissance period, but they're trying to claim that they did, and they're using a big lie and good branding in order to do it, and they've been very successful. That's why most people believe them. How would you define or how would you characterize the Renaissance period? And and I know that as you're going through these individuals throughout history that have been very influential mm -hmm. philosophically, yeah. how, 
how would you just for background how would you define the renaissance period and its yeah. importance no very very good question so what the renaissance period actually was the beginning aspects of it, and we're going to talk about the people the medieval theologians that everyone think are so evil and a part of the dark ages we're going to talk about what they thought and why it gave birth to the renaissance so in other words Apart from what you're going to learn in school, the Renaissance was not people ignoring the medieval theologians. It was them listening to the medieval theologians. That's mm. what started it. So what happened was it wasn't a recapturing of Greco-Roman philosophy. That's what a lot of people think. So they said, well, Gutenberg invents the printing press. We finally get access to the writings of Aristotle and Plato, and that brings us out of the dark ages of Christianity and into secular humanism and enlightenment. Right? That's what they said. In reality, what had happened is, yes, the starting of the printing press had a great effect. I don't have time to get into everything that it did. But the main thing that it did is it did pull away people from the dogma of the Catholic Church. That was important. However, you got to understand what was running the Catholic Church at the time and what the Renaissance period was moving away from was not Christianity. It was Greco-Roman philosophy. So great example. The, people bring this up all the time as a, as a proof that the Renaissance period went away from Christianity into secular humanism, Galileo. So Galileo is the guy who figured out that the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa, that the sun, everyone thought that the sun revolved around the earth. Well, where did people get the idea that the sun revolved around the earth? People were like, well, Christianity, obviously. It was those intolerant, ignorant <laughs> religious people. No, Aristotle theorized that the sun revolved around the earth. And many people actually agreed with him. But Aristotle was the guy who believed that that was the case. Galileo actually argued from scripture that that wasn't true, right? Wow. He actually argued that, no, 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 I've proven it. I could show you in the telescope. I could show you that this is not the case. And the people who were listening to him really readily were the Protestants, but Galileo was a, was a Catholic. And so okay. he didn't want to go to the Protestants. He <laughs> wanted the Catholic Church to get ahead of the times. And the Catholics were actually willing to listen to him. The problem with Galileo is that he was just a jerk. He really was. You know, when you study the history, what happened was a, a very prominent Catholic priest said, hey, you got a new idea that's really, really cool. You're going against orthodoxy, right? Aristotle has been the word in cosmology since he wrote. This is pre-Christ, man. You're going against over a millennium of just complete dogma. You're not going to be able to just do that and not uh, piss off some people, basically. So if you're going to do this, do it smart, be gentle. And what does he do? He creates a false dialogue, something that never happened, between uh, someone who believed in Galilean uh, cosmology and someone who believed in Aristotelian cosmology. And he named, I can't remember what he named the guy who believed in Aristotelian cosmology, but the name essentially means idiot. And he made the guy a complete buffoon. So it's not even a real conversation, but he made the guy a complete buffoon. And it was clearly to insult the Catholic Church. So he created a, a very bad caricature That's right. of the religious sentiment in, in that position. And, and remember, it's not religious from Christianity. This is Aristotelian thought. This is not right. Christian. Because the world was religious <clears throat> and because that was the common thinking and the church was sort of the philosophical authority right. for everyone's thinking, uh, it kind of historically has fallen on square on the church's shoulders to, to be at fault right for pushing or I should say uh, suppressing his views <laughs> absolutely so actually the thinking so I'm gonna just look at the two aspects of the Renaissance so again it happens around the 1300s depends on when you're calculating it happens around the 1300s 
and it moves into the 1500s, right? That's uh, usually, sometimes people will calculate even into the 1600s, that would be the later periods of the Renaissance uh, period of time in the West. But essentially what it is, is an explosion of arts and scientific innovation that happened at this time. So people mainly focus on those two poles. I could also focus on politics. There was a huge explosion of political thinking that happened around this time. I'm not gonna get into that for the sake of time right now, but we're just gonna focus on science and arts. What was it that the medieval theologians figured out that went against, think about this, it went against the prevailing Greco-Roman philosophies that had been predominating the West at the time. And my evidence for that, by the way, really quickly before we get more into this, is actually the Bible doesn't forbid people from science and the arts. It was not Christianity that convinced these people that they should go away from science and the arts. It was the philosophies of the, Gre the Greco-Romans. So let's just look at two. Aristotle had the theory of how knowledge was formed, and in some of his philosophical texts, he said that the only way to get to knowledge is through syllogistic thinking. So in other words, rationale, inductive and deductive reasoning. That's how we believe that you came to knowledge. He didn't think about any physical inquiry of actually committing yourself to hypotheses and conducting experiments and figuring out if they were so. He was just like, no, 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 it's just syllogistic thinking. You come up with a hypothesis and you think it out and you see if it's rational and it's consistent and cohesive within itself. That's how you figure out things to be true versus untrue. That's what you do. And so for over a thousand years, that's what people did. That's, that's how people conducted science. And that's how you also communicate truth to other people. That's right. That that's, if you want a whole group of people to learn something new, you do it that way. Exactly. Now this is Sir Francis Bacon. He is the guy who literally wrote the book on the scientific method, hmm. okay? Now tell me if this guy sounds like a secular humanist, okay? So this is from his book. Um, I can't remember exactly which book it is. I have like a com compilation of all the books he ever wrote, so it's hard for me to remember which book I'm quoting from, but this is from Francis Bacon. And he says, I had rather believe all the fables and the legend and the Talmud and the, Al and the Quran than this universal frame that is without a mind. So what is he saying? I would rather believe the most archaic, the most paganistic thoughts about the universe and the cosmology that's formed from a mind than believe the atheistic thought that believes in a universe that doesn't have a mind behind it. Okay, now he keeps going. Therefore, God never wrought a miracle to convince atheism because his ordinary works convince it. It is true, a little bit of philosophy inclineth a man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy brings a man's mind to religion. For while the man, mind of man looketh upon second causes scattered about, it may sometimes rest on them and go no further. But when it beholds the chain of them, a confederate linked together, it must needs fly to providence and therefore deity. What's he saying? So he's saying that like, if I start studying the natural sciences and I start looking at things and seeing cause and effect, and I'm starting physics and things like that, I might start to believe as I see the mechanisms of physics, maybe there isn't a God behind this. I could always figure it out, which by the way, this is the exact philosophy of Socrates that happened over a millennia ago, right? So Socrates in a book called The Clouds was arguing that there was no God named Zeus because he figured out where lightning came from. He's like, well, lightning comes from the clouds. So there's no reason to theorize that Zeus is throwing lightning bolts when I see him coming from the clouds. And someone says, well, where do the, where do the clouds come from? He says, well, the wind. And he says, well, when does the wind come from? And he says, well, 
and he couldn't come up with the answer. So he says, the vortex. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like he just came up with a word. But that was his argument. I see these mechanisms that predict natural occurrences. So therefore, I could do away with God. Now, he didn't become an atheist, but that was the framework that allowed for atheism to start to develop. I see these secondary causes, and I infer there's no God. Mm. What Bacon is saying is he's saying, yes, but once you understand how intricate these causes are, these second causes, once you understand how unbelievably crazy fine-tuned all these mechanisms of physics are, you have to see that there's a mind behind this matter, right? There's no way you can conclude that atheism is true. So he spends an entire chapter making fun of atheists in his book because he believed that the natural sciences disproved atheism, right? This is the guy who founded the scientific method, right? This is not some hick from the six. This is a guy from the scientific revolution, the founder of the scientific method in the heat of the Renaissance period, declaiming atheism and saying that his philosophies could never be used to prove atheism. They prove the opposite. They prove theism. That was the whole point. Uh, how about the arts? This is Giorgio Fasari. Uh, he wrote a book called The Lives of the Artists, and he was a contemporary with guys like Michael Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci. He lived alongside them, and he started writing their biographies while they were still alive. And it's, it's really a tedious book, but it, it's kind of interesting. And this is a quote from the book. Design, however, is the foundation of both these arts, or rather the animating principle of all creative processes. And surely design existed in absolute perfection before the creation when almighty God, having made the vast expanse of the universe and adorned the heavens with his shining lights, directed his creative intellect further to clear air and solid earth. And then in the act of creating man, he fashioned the first forms of painting and sculpture in the sublime grace of created things. That's an amazing quote. This is a guy who's hanging out with guys like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci. He's in the high arts, and he's talking about the foundation and the basis of all arts is found in the creator God. Right? He's saying everything we're doing is just an imitation of the great creator, the creator with a capital C. So what are these guys running away from that's allowing for this Renaissance period to occur? Well, what had happened uh, is in the early church, there was a beginning when you read a lot of the early, early church fathers. So I'm talking like the first 300 years, maybe a little less of church history. You see that the early church is persecuted and they are still trying to actively convert Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jewish people, right? So you have guys like Justin Martyr, who has a long, long book called The Dialogue with Trifo, in which he's trying to convert a Jewish, an Orthodox Jewish guy, and he's going to the Old Testament scriptures, and he's trying to convince them out. So you have the first couple hundred years of Christianity in which that's the basis. We're a Jewish faith. We're a Messianic Jewish faith. After the 200s, once the church starts becoming a little bit more powerful, what happens is, is the top thinkers in the church are converts from Greco-Roman philosophical schools. And some of the big ones, the big names to come out of this period, are guys like Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and St. Augustine, right? All three of these guys were previously philosophers from Greco-Roman schools, and they converted into Christianity. And just like all of us, we bring some of our bad ideas from our past life into Christianity, right? Uh, same with a guy like Tertullian as well, by the way. Uh, so they're bringing their bad Greco-Roman beliefs about the world mm. into Christianity, and they're misreading the texts of Scripture. 
So Clement of Alexandria, he wrote a book called The Instructor. It's a trilogy. So, uh, and he's just going through the Bible and what we can know about reality and things like this. Now, this is a quote from the second part of that book, right? So remember, it's a trilogy of books. So this is The Instructor Part 2. We must be on guard against whatever pleasure titillates the eye and ear and effeminates. For the various spells of the broken strains and plaintive numbers of the carrion muse corrupt men's morals, drawing to perturbation of mind by the licentious and mischievous art of music. What's he saying? The arts are bad <laughs> because they're used to deceive the emotions of man and pull us away from rationality. Where did he get this idea from? This is not Judaism. In fact, Judaism is the only religion in the world that doesn't have any branches of what we call asceticism, which is what he's exposing right here, right? Mm -hmm. Every other religion has ascetic branches in it. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, right? Even the Native American mythologies have elements of asceticism in them. This idea that the physical universe is not how you know the divine, it's only by transcending the physical universe through your mind that you become more in, encompassed <clears throat> by divinity and, and godliness and things like that. It's especially true of Eastern religions. It's always a, an escape from reality. It's uh, evil is, is illusory, mm. uh, you know, those kinds of denials. And yeah. the only way to reach God is by denying yourself, denying that you exist, denying that you are an individual. Um, it's very monistic. Is oh, yeah. The term. Yep, monistic. You're exactly yeah. correct. That, that monism. That's the problem. And so Clement of Alexandria is coming from that school of thought, and he's reading that into his Christianity. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 33. Okay, It says this, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all the work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Think about how different that is from what Clement of Alexandria said. He's like, no, music is terrible. Never play it because it's stupid. It brings you away from God because it moves you away from rationality. And here's the psalmist saying, not just play. Play what? Skillfully skillfully on these instruments because why the earth is good mm. the earth is good and we should glorify god in the earth now he actually does deal with this passage in his book and it's a really terrible rebuttal he's like well you know he says 10 string instrument and he's like well the heart is actually the 10 string instrument and let me give you a reason as to why that is and the leer is actually the mouth and because <laughs> he gives like a really weird kind of interpretation of that passage but it, you could see already in the early parts of christianity they're reinterpreting the Jewish belief system through a Greco-Roman philosophical lens. And this is the rise of Christian asceticism. This is the rise of Christian asceticism, and this is a movement away from the arts. Because, again, I don't have a whole lot of time to go into this, but the philosophies that helped the Greco-Roman world become an artistic bastion were guys like Pythagoras. Uh, you, you may have learned about him in school. He yeah. made the Pythagorean, the Pythagorean theorem. theorem. Yeah, Pythagorean theorem. He was the first guy who figured out that music was set to numeric values, right? So he was a mathematician. He was the first guy who realized that music was set to numeric values. Well, what did that prove? Well, it proved that music, therefore, had to be rational. If you could set it to rational numeric values, it must be perceived by the mind in some way. It's not an animalistic thing, as Clement of Alexandria is saying. Hmm. It's not purely emotive. It is something coming out of the mind that's allowing you to enjoy it. 
right? Or Aristotle, who wrote really extensively about the melding between the mind and the soul. He wrote an entire book called Poetics, where he talked about the beauty of the arts, right? So the Greco-Roman world was pulling away from that. However, the philosophies that won out during the time of the apostles, during the time that Jesus was uh, in his earthly ministry, was the philosophies of Plato, because Plato was a much more accessible author mm. than Pythagoras or Aristotle. And so during that time, those were the predominant philosophies. Well, his conversational writing style made it very digestible. Oh, yeah. For... And the main school that comes out of Plato, there are two, the Gnostics and the Stoics. Mm. And when you read your New Testament, if you're in the book of Acts, you hear a lot about the Stoics. And you hear a lot about the Gnostics. They don't use the name Gnostic, but their philosophy is being contested against. First John is an entire, almost a rebuttal to Gnostic, uh, uh, the influence of Gnosticism on Christianity. Absolutely. So you see Plato's ideas permeating the church even in the first century. But like I said, they didn't fully catch on until about the 300s. Well, what happened? It got to such a fever pitch, I'm not making this up, that in the church, people started to believe. So monasteries, the monastic life, right? complete asceticism, remove yourself from all pleasure, just live in a cave somewhere and study the gospel. It became so predominant that the majority of people, if you wanted to be a holy person, that's what you did, right? You took a vow of celibacy, you took a vow of, vow of poverty, and you moved into the mountains and you served God. That was the idea. And in that time period, you have different theologians who are thinking, this isn't right. There's something off about this. These medieval theologians were starting to figure out that they weren't actually believing the text of Scripture, they were believing something different. And the main dude who figured this out was a guy named Thomas Aquinas, and he's living at the millennia, right? He's in the 1000s AD, yeah. and he's studying Aristotle, who again did not believe like Plato. He believed in a unification of body and spirit, not a dualistic view of the separation between body and spirit. He's studying Aristotle, he's comparing it to the Word of God, and he's realizing Oh my gosh, we've gotten it wrong. He's considered the greatest thinker, <clears throat> uninspired thinker of all time. <laughs> yeah, Aquinas was insane. I would definitely put him in the top five smartest guys who ever lived. Um, so Aquinas wrote a book called the Summa Theologica, and he's making his argument. Now at the time, people were saying, you can't even name God. This is how crazy it got. They're like, uh, you can't even name God, because if you say God is good, well, you said that ice cream is good. And so are you saying that ice cream is God? So therefore, you know, and people wow. were really arguing like this. So this is and like low, like people's general educational yeah. <laughs> understanding was really low. This is when Super we low. dipped to probably some of the lowest literacy rates yeah. uh, for, for the West. Anyway. Now again, it's, it's not Christianity that's doing this. It's mm. the decay of Roman society mm. after the barbarian destruction of everything. And again, the permeation of Platonic ideas. That was what was doing it. But Aquinas, through the scriptures mainly, and then also Aristotle to help him contemplate these things, is pulling away. And no, this is what he says about the name of God. He says, God prepossesses in himself all perfections of creatures, being himself simply and universally perfect. Hence, every creature represents him and is like him so far as it possesses some perfections. Yet it represents him not as something of the same species or genus, but as the excelling principle of whose form the effects fall short. Although they derive from the same kind of likeness, thereto, even as the forms of the inferior bodies represents the power of the sun. Therefore, the aforesaid names, names like goodness and justice and things like that, signify the divine substance, but in an imperfect manner. 
even as creature, creatures represented imperfectly. Okay, so what's he saying? He's saying, look, we call God good. What we're saying is I have a imperfect conception of good that I know through my physical experiences. That's the best I got because things are made in God's image. God created everything in his image. It's mm. fallen, so it's not a perfect representation of God, but it's the best we got. If you sit on a mountaintop and you just try to conceptualize about God and what he might be like, devoid of any physical representation of him, you're not going to get anywhere. Mm. You're getting further from God. You're getting into your narcissism. You're getting into your weird ethereal thoughts. You're not moving towards God. You're moving away from him. If wow. you want to know God, you need to look at his created order and find him there and reason up, right? So I don't stop at the created order and say God is exactly like a good father. Well, no, no, no. God is a perfected good father. Mm. I see a type of God and a father who's doing his job correctly, not a perfect father because there aren't any. And so he's saying you reason up from there. That's how you know God. And so he's teaching people, get invested in your lives. Live your life. Don't go on a mountain somewhere and think you could think of God. I, don't know, I, mean, I don't know if you guys have ever tried it. Those listening of like sitting around trying to conceptualize God doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah. It's because you can't conceptualize God. You can't do it because he's beyond our understanding. You have to start with what God has presented you, the physical creation, and reason up. God is like this, but far greater. This is the argument of Paul in Romans chapter 1, and this is the argument of many different biblical authors throughout the scriptures. Mm. You cannot know God intently, but as God tells Moses in the book of Exodus, you can see my back. You can't see all my glory, but you could see the after effects of my glory. You could mm -hmm. see the representations of my glory in creation. So once Christians started to understand this, they're like, oh, okay, so I don't have to go live on a mountain to find God. I can find God in nature. And all of a sudden people started thinking, well, how do I discover truth in nature? And that's what gave guys like Francis Bacon the idea of the scientific method. Mm -hmm. I don't just think in my head what's true. I get into nature and I test it. Right? I, actually, I actually do things in nature, and I figure it out with my body. That's how I figure out truth. And then the artists as well. Christians were no longer thinking, well, in order to honor God, and I'm kind of artistic, i got to die to that, because it's all emotive, and it's irrational, and it's going to move me away from godliness. So I just need to die to my creative gifts, uh, or I need to do it. The Catholic Church got heavy into this. They still are. Icons, yeah, right. right? Icons are... Well, I'm not actually creating anything. I'm just representing something, right? So it stole creativity away from people. Mm. They're just like, I'm going to represent this icon of St. Mary. I'm gonna At just the same make time, little... rejecting all other kinds of artistic expressions, exactly. music, uh, other art forms, uh, almost to the point where you think, I, I remember uh, I was doing a tour in Germany, and we, I actually got to take a, I wasn't supposed to take a picture, but I took one anyway. <laughs> I was kind of out of ignorance at the moment, but of one of the desks that Martin Luther used mm. to do his uh, common German language translation of the Bible. Back then, you know, it was like for us to be forced to uh, go to the Latin Mass and not know <laughs> Latin. <laughs> well, they were reading the Bible in uh, in a language that wasn't common to the common German, and uh, Martin Luther believed that the Bible should be in everyone's hands. Mm. <laughs> and uh, anyhow... Um, you know, fast forward to the modern day, and the Lutherans were still arguing that, no, we can only use the Luther Bible, the original mm -hmm. one, even yeah. though German has changed since then dramatically. Yeah. It's like, it's worse than you and I trying to understand, like, let's say, the the 1611 King James Version. Right. It's, it's far worse <laughs> than that. And, yeah. and most of us can at least 
grasp the kind of, yeah. pretty well. <laughs> For them, it was even worse, right. and, and it was a big fight of these traditionalists wanting to hold on to, right. well, no, this was the inspired version. Truth, yeah. No, absolutely. So I'm going to read these last two quotes from people in the Renaissance period, people at the forefront of it, uh, one scientist and one artist. And we'll see how Aquinas' ideas, so after what I just said, see how they're represented in these guys' conversational pieces, right? And notice how different it is from Plato, Aristotle. So this is Johannes Kepler. He was a mathematician, an astronomer, and an astrologer. He actually was the one who created the laws for planetary motion, right? So really bright guy. He lived uh, around 1571, and he said, uh, 1571 to 1630, since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regards to the book of nature, it benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather, above all else, the glory of God. That's amazing. Hmm. Uh, this is Johann Sebastian Bach. He says, the aim and the final reason of all music should be none else but the glory of God and refreshing of the soul. Where this is not observed, there will be no music, but only a devilish hubbub. Now, Bach, actually, on all of his pieces, he wrote uh, SDG on all of them, which stands for Solo de los Gloria, hmm. only for the glory of God, for the wow. glory of God alone. So, and he's not writing music with lyrics in it. He's writing classical music, and he still sees it as, I am worshiping God. Because our God is, beauty is the invisible image of the visible God, right? Mm -hmm. And so I am seeking God in the transcendent, and I am directly glorifying him in what I'm doing in my craft and being good at it. And Kepler as well. He's like, I'm not going away from Christianity mm -hmm. by studying the cosmos. I am proving Christianity. Mm -hmm. I'm seeking God in the cosmos. That's what I'm doing. It reminds me of that Eric Little quote from the movie Chariots of Fire. He mm -hmm. says, you know, I know God's called me to take the gospel but uh, he also made me fast. And when yeah. I run, I feel his pleasure. Absolutely. It's that's amazing. it. And that's the idea, that I don't need to go live on a mountain somewhere to discover God. Mm -hmm. I don't need to necessarily... You should go to church. There's an effectiveness of church. But you don't need to go to church to experience God. You can experience God in your day-to-day -day life in pursuing the true, the good, and the beautiful, mm -hmm. right? Now, why did we lose the Renaissance? Well, as the scientific revolution kind of hit a fever pitch, right, as it started going and going and going... People w took too far a step forward and said, well, if we could discover things through the natural world, what need is there to go into the intellect, to actually reason through things? Maybe that doesn't matter at all. And so you have this push towards materialism. And that materialistic push, what it created is a bifurcation in people's understanding, that there's spiritual knowledge and there's physical knowledge. Secular and the sacred. That's right. And that idea actually Christians started to sign on to. They're like, you're right. What does Christianity have to say about the sciences? They forgot what guys like Bacon and Kepler were that, teaching. That they right? initiated. That they initiated. The pursuit of that. And like I said, it was this branding effort by the atheists that was very successful that actually did crea uh, create in Christians this idea, this skepticism of the arts and science hmm. that had preexisted, that came from the Greco-Roman world. It came back into the church. It swept back into the church. And the atheists were able to take from us what well, we gave it to them, take from us what we ourselves had built up. Wow. It's like a, going into a carpenter shop. Oh, Jesus was a carpenter and mastering making the perfect table. Yeah. And then an atheist comes in and goes, I like woodworking too, but I don't believe in making tables. I'm going to make something else. Yeah. And just taking the art or the, the framework and then stripping it of its historical meaning. Absolutely. And that's why, by the way, you're going to see the arts and sciences in our modern day. They're, they're flailing. And the reason why mm -hmm. they're flailing is because they've lost the theology. 
that actually gave birth to them, mm-hmm. right? So you have to believe in a God, as Bacon is talking about, you have to believe in a God that organized the laws of nature mm-hmm. in a very precise manner. If you don't believe that, then science becomes, as, and we'll talk more about this guy later, Michel Foucault, science becomes an orthodoxy by which you compel people to do things. Hmm. Right? This is what Huxley believed, the Aldous Huxley, when he wrote Brave New World, and this is what Michel Foucault believed when he was writing his works, right? It becomes, truth becomes a power game in which you impose your will on others, utilizing your knowledge that is superior to theirs, right? Same with the arts. Once you get rid of an objective standard of beauty, which is what God provides for, there's an objective beauty that is pointing to the transcendent beauty of God. Once you get rid of that, then the arts only become just whatever I want them to be. I'm no longer pointing to something objective and good. I'm just pointing to whatever I see as good. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I can make whatever I want. This is why the arts are failing. This is why, and and it only becomes capitalistic. It's just whatever makes money, essentially, and the science has become all that brings power. Right? So power and money are now the guiding principles, where at the Renaissance period, it was the art itself that was driving these guys. That's what you see in their writings, because their ultimate purpose was the glorification of God. Hmm. That's why it worked. So Christians, if we understand this, we could recapture the theology that gave birth to the Renaissance, and we could move forward. We could actually take back the institutions that we built. Because right now, the institutions are in decline, right? If you don't see that, I don't know what to tell you. But the institutions of science and the arts are kind of a joke now. They're really declining in their authenticity, in their integrity, as well as their innovation, right? They're, they're flailing because they lost the premise that gave birth to them in the first place. Mm. So when Christians realize that and they wisen up to this, we could take back over those institutions because we have the theology that allows them to mm. be powerful. The, the world doesn't. And it's, it's sad that we've seen this history of of the the Christian approach to the arts of and it's always been not always I mean my experience is always been the fact that there's a level of mediocrity when yeah. it comes to approaching things it's like yeah. uh, I, I I feel bad for thinking this but you know I've been to so many different churches around the globe different denominations and a lot of the times there's this oh then we have the the worship team and it's really like the tone deaf monkeys <laughs> and you know you like thank god that there's the there's the will to want to praise god but they missed that part about skillfully right like <laughs> skillfully to the lord yeah and that was something that my mentor andre cole uh, always ingrained in my thinking was is that if god gave us his very best mm. then we should settle for no less mm. from ourselves when it comes to uh, whatever it is that we do, whatever right. we do with our hands. And he was an illusionist. And <clears throat> and I thought I needed to give up my love for the art of illusion when I became a believer. But then I met him and I thought, well, gosh, I can glorify God. And so when I shortly thereafter went to compete in Las Vegas and was able to share my testimony in front of a couple thousand professional illusionists from around the world after I won the internationals, mm. I before I walked out on stage to do my act, I just imagined Jesus. This is something that uh, that my friend who led me to the Lord told me, he goes, just imagine Jesus sitting in the front row and you're doing it for an audience of one. Hmm. And I knocked out of the park, fortunately. <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's but I, I wish we would really retake that. Yeah. Because if life has no meaning and no morality, no basis for human value, if God does not exist. In other words, if God is not real, then human beings don't have any objective, essential value. Right. 
It's whatever that society or that group or that community decides is valuable. Mm -hmm. And we have no metric or no point of reference to determine what is good and bad, mm -hmm. what is right and wrong, what is morally good and up and praiseworthy and what is morally evil, mm -hmm. because there's no point of reference. There's nothing outside of my community, outside of my culture, outside, outside of humanity to differentiate between good and evil. So if I have no way of determining what's good and evil, no way of determining whether you should be valuable, whether you're in the womb or not, or whatever it may be, right. how can anything I do be valuable? Yeah. That's why I appreciate that someone like C.S. Lewis would be referred to as a Christian humanist, yeah. someone who values what human beings do, but from a Christian perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Well, let's get to a couple of questions if we have no. some time. Uh, we haven't been getting a lot of traffic today, um, so that's, uh, I guess, a good timing. But um, a pickup from yesterday. Hmm. <clears throat> to be Friday. I'm sorry, Friday. Yeah, yeah. the last time we were here. Yeah. Mac D, he, he had a really interesting question. He wanted to know, how do we as Christians, and I guess this plays along well with our dialogue today about the arts and, and the culture that we're in right now. Yeah. But he asked, how do we as Christians stand up to these lies and ideologies hmm. without being offensive? I tend to shy away and hate things that shouldn't even be up for debate as it is uh, plain to see. So he's saying that I hate these things, shouldn't even be up for debate, and I yeah. can kind of read between the lines. Yeah. Uh, but how do I, you know, is the response to shy away or how do you communicate without being offensive or, or does that matter? Yeah, so um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, he wrote the book The Gulag Archipelago, and uh, he also gave a Nobel, he, he won a Nobel Prize. Uh, essentially, he was a survivor of the gulags um, that were committed by Soviet Russia, and uh, he was a Christian, he came out, and he had memorized the stories of the guys who he served in the gulag with that were falsely imprisoned by this terrible totalitarian regime that said, we own truth, and what is true is what we say, period. And you either mimic it or you go to prison. And these were a lot of these guys were people who said, no, I'm not going to compromise truth. Send me to prison if you have to. So when Solzhenitsyn got out and he wrote his book, The Gulag Archipelago, which you know compiled all these different stories of survivors and people who didn't survive, the gulags, it totally revolutionized the way that the West looked at communism. Because up until that point, people were like, well, you know, maybe communism isn't that bad. You know, <laughs> like there's some good ideas there. And, you know, it seems to be working out for those Russians. You know, they've certainly gotten rid of a lot of dissidents. Uh, well, yeah, they got rid of the dissidents at the point of a gun. And, you know, Solzhenitsyn totally blew the, uh, the secret out and showed what was really happening in Soviet Russia. And that started a political campaign against communism from the West, as well as internally in Russia itself, because even the peasants in Russia didn't know what was actually going on there. And it deteriorated the Soviet Union from the inside out and destroyed it. And in his Nobel winning speech, he said, if you want to stand up against lies, you either have to not tell a lie at the very least or tell the truth. Hmm. Says that's all it takes to stand up against lies. <clears throat> so as Christians, we have to understand that, that if we're gonna set up against lies, if we're gonna stand up against untruths, we don't have to be violent. We don't have to be egregious. We don't have to be even violent, but the truth is going to speak for itself and the truth will win out. Hmm. So if you wanna stand up against the, the predations of our current culture, don't lie, right? Don't lie, don't go along with lies. Don't say something is true when you know it is not to protect the feelings of someone else. Right, that is participating with the lies that are causing our culture to go astray. Right, you, again, you don't have to be offensive about it. You don't have to be violent. 
And there are debates, by the way, about what constitutes offensiveness and not. Uh, because again, some Christians are like, well, that means I can never be sarcastic or I can never be uh, aggressive. That's not true. But whatever your temperament is, whatever you feel comfortable with doing, just try not to condemn what other people are doing. You stick to the truth and you refuse to tell lies. And that will make a difference. If enough people stand up and they simply say, I refuse to tell lies, that will have a marked difference within our society. Hmm. One of the reasons why our culture has gotten to the place that it has is because many well-meaning believers have gone along with lies in order to protect the feelings of those around us. And that is a participation with evil. So what Solzhenitsyn is saying is, is like what, the reason why the Soviet Union rose to predominance is not just the people that went along with them for power games, but it was the vast majority of people who simply went along with a lie, who hmm. refused to speak the truth. So uh, that would be the main thing I would That's say. That's a, a really good assessment of the state of our union, is mm -hmm. that just a, a continual willingness. You know that there are the mass majority of people that disagree with XYZ situation or philosophy or ideology, mm -hmm. and yet we seem mysteriously silent. Yeah. That's what I, I appreciate about uh, Matt Walsh. Yeah. You know, he does this documentary, What is a Woman, yeah. trying to combat uh, radical gender theory, right? And now he's been hacked, and he's got he's got twenty four seven no, armed really security at his him. home. Yeah, people have been confronting him at his church, <clears throat> in front of his making his children cry, and things like just yeah. really insane. Where he's getting death threats. Yeah. Uh, By the way, the, the person who confronted him in front of the church was a proclaimed Christian. I know. Yeah, saying, fellow Catholic. Yeah, saying I, I don't like what you're doing because you're being mean about it. Mm -hmm. So it, that's an example of someone who's willing to go along with a lie, in the name of love. And I've right. never seen, I mean, I keep hearing that, you know, for example, the gay rights movement was combating heavy, heavy violence. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't know the history. I don't know how much violence. And, but I, I keep thinking, where is the violence that I keep hearing about today in 2023? Yeah. How people are in fear for their lives because they're part of the LGBTQ plus community, et yeah. cetera, et cetera. And I think, okay, well, where, where are these people? Let's go punish them. Let's punish the people who are being yeah. violent, who are threatening people's lives yeah. because they don't want, because they're opposed to uh, the LGBT plus community. Yeah. So where are they? And I cannot find them. <laughs> but well, when I read how yeah. Matt Walsh or, or people like him who yeah. are taking the stand on for truth, they're just saying, look, I, <clears throat> I don't have anything against anyone personally, but it's just, flat wrong it's yeah, just it's not, not true. true not only that but it's actually a mockery of of who we are as human beings and yeah. the, the nuclear family and, and and men and women you're mocking yeah. that and so when people take that position they're being met with baseball bats and things yeah. like that and i kind of wonder that what you're saying about this whole topic of how those who use science as a club right. or use whatever it is to control people rather right. than to explore and discover God yeah. is, uh, gosh, such a dangerous game. Absolutely. Hmm. And, you know, again, like, so as, as Christians, when we see the deterioration, this is a problem with the internet, with the information crisis, that you see so much information coming at you at all times, and you could feel very helpless in doing anything. And you got to remember what the apostle said. Is it right in, in, in the eyes of God to say the things that we've seen and heard or not? You be hmm. the judge. What are they saying? It's not our responsibility to convert the Roman Empire. <laughs> That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to speak the things that we've seen and heard, right? Mm. We're going to speak the truth. 
and we're going to allow God to do what he's going to do, right? Mm. That's the idea. If The more you look out and the more you're like, oh my gosh, the world's falling apart. How are we ever going to fix this? The more you keep looking out and out and out and expecting that you're going to be the one that fixes it, the more desolate you're going to become and the more depressed you're going to become. But to remember, we're not here to fix the world. We're here to represent and to worship the one who is, right? Jesus is going to fix the world. He's going to come back and fix the world. And he is working out his plan. We don't know when he's coming back, but we have seen awakenings. We have seen pulls back from oblivion from many different secularist, humanistic, paganistic ideologies that have taken root in various parts around the world. We don't know what God's going to do, but it's God who's saving the world. We just have to decide to participate with him, right? In whatever way, God, make me a representative of your truth, and I'm going to commit in my heart to telling the truth, or at the very least, not lying, right? I'm not Mm going to lie. I'm going to participate with your truth. Mm. I really love 1 Peter 3.15, but I'm going to read from verse 8. Uh, finally, all of you be one, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And then I'll skip down to verse 13. Or, I'm sorry, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Hmm. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Mm. So, yes, we tell the truth. It will offend people. Jesus Christ, and the way I like to put it when I teach apologetics is I say our job as, as believers, especially as communicators, is to clear the bushes so that every person can have an unobstructed view of Christ. Right. Christ is the stumbling block. And you putting that block in front of people is not the problem. Now, if you are the stumbling block, that's a different issue. Right. But do whatever you can to present the truth, and that's all we can be responsible for. We cannot be responsible for people's responses. And I honestly believe, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, when he was talking about people rioting, because, again, he preached peaceful resistance, and he was a Christian, and there's a reason why he did that. But when he was talking about people who were rioting, he says riots are the language of the unheard. Now, there's, there's some... Uh, wisdom there and there's some falsehood there but the main wisdom we can pull from that quote is when people feel ultimately responsible for converting the minds and hearts of others and they feel as that they're not getting anywhere their natural recourse is violence mm. so a lot of people believe well no, no no people are becoming violence because we're telling the truth and it's it's exciting people that's not why people are becoming violent people are becoming violent because they think that the world is anesthetized to truth they feel like even if you speak the truth no one will listen and because they feel like truth can't win out because they believe that that you're not going to get anywhere by just being honest, they use violence as a recourse. Mm. Right now, that's not true for everybody, but many people turn to violence in recourse to believing that they won't be heard. Um, and by the way, a lot of people on the left side of the aisle politically are telling their constituents, the system is rigged against you, you will never be heard. And that's why it's becoming so violent. Mm. And I'm, I, I am more fearful of a similar ideology coming about on the right. You can't win through truth. Therefore, well, what's the conclusion? Well, we have to win through aggression. And that would, I, that's not uh, out of the question. Right. Sure, it's scary. Uh, JD wanted to know, and uh, we have time for this. This is an interesting question. Uh, JD, thank you. When Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit, why did he breathe on the disciples? And mm. should we do it today? I saw a mega church pastor do the same thing. 
Yeah. So should yeah. we go around breathing on people? Uh, yeah. I mean, not in this COVID era. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> uh, what is, uh, no, I, I remember yeah. hearing someone preach on this, and they said that it was a rabbinical practice to breathe on your disciples. But could you give us a little historical clarity there? I mean, the simplest answer, there are like uh, reasons as to why Jesus did it. Because remember, he's communicating to very particular people who have very particular ideas. And so he is representing truth in the best way they can understand it. So again, it's a spiritual event, but he's doing something physical to represent that to him. But the easiest possible way for us to look at it is the word spirit literally means breath, right? The word in Greek is pneuma. We get our word pneumatic from it. And the word in Hebrew is ruach. Right? It means breath or wind. So what's the best way for Jesus to represent an indwelling of the Holy Spirit? By breathing. And not only that, but it's a callback to Genesis chapter 2, when God forms man from the clay and then breathes into him and becomes a living being. Mm. So the idea of being born again. So God forms man, breathes into him the animating principle of life. Man falls away from God, loses that breath at the moment of death. Jesus comes back from the dead, right? He resurrects promising a resurrection for all who are faithful to him, and then he breathes the Spirit into them. Now, why is it inappropriate for me to do that? Because I'm not God, right? The Holy Spirit is God's Spirit. I don't generate the Holy Spirit because I am made in the image of God, but I am a participant in God's created order. I am not God himself. So I can't impart to someone the Holy Spirit, and so therefore it would be very inappropriate for me to do that. But I could pray over someone, say, man, you know, give your life to God, and he'll breathe his Spirit into you, right? He'll indwell you with his Spirit, but that's a work of God. That's not a work of me. Well, thank you so much for your questions, and thank you for tuning in today. We hope you've enjoyed the program. We'll be again here tomorrow, same place, same time, and God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.